Does the devil ever go down to Georgia looking for souls to steal? Or is his agenda less about taking your soul for himself and more about wanting you to do with your own soul whatever seems wise in your own eyes? Today on Instoried, we take an initial look at the serpent of Genesis chapter 3 and see how he carries himself in a conversation. We'll also talk about the tendency of the writers of the Old Testament to repeat themselves at times and why they do it. All on the way. Welcome to Instoried. I'm Corey Smith. Try and imagine for a minute that you're about to go on a big trip out of the country. You get to the airport, you check your luggage, and you make your way to airport security. You're also traveling today with a friend, by the way, who has never flown on a plane before. And for the purposes of this little exercise, try and imagine that your friend flying with you has no knowledge of history whatsoever. So as you both go through the painstaking process of passing through metal detectors, taking off shoes and emptying pockets, putting all items and carry-ons on the conveyors as you walk through single file, your friend turns to you and asks, why are we doing all of this? Why all this trouble? I thought we'd just be able to buy a plane ticket, get on a plane, and get to where we're going. So you turn to them and explain why this is the way the world works now. And your explanation will probably involve telling them a story. A story of how over two decades ago, on September 11, 2001, One of the worst tragedies and most heinous crimes the United States has ever seen occurred as a result of the actions of a few. On that one day, the world was forever changed, and it's been that way ever since. The way you just told your friend the story of 9-11, a story that explains something about the present in light of something that happened in the past, is exactly the way Genesis chapter 3 is intended to work. That is the way this part of the story functions not only for the grand narrative of the Bible, but also the life story you and I live out every day. We are all living east of Eden now. Because of the actions of the two, the man and the woman, on that one day, the world was changed forever. It's really hard to overstate the importance of Genesis chapter 3. Without this part of the story, everything else that comes afterwards isn't even necessary, really. You wouldn't need it. You could just have a two-chapter Bible were it not for that happening in Genesis chapter 3. And yet, here we are. And, And things were just going so well, too, in those first two chapters. It was literally paradise. The man and the woman, together with God, they've got a mission he's given them to have dominion over this good world, take good care of it, and fill it up, be fruitful and multiply. If you didn't know what was coming next, I would think it difficult to imagine anything going wrong. Unlike the other kinds of origin stories we looked at back in the first episode, this story manages to get a full two chapters in with no conflict. And chapter three changes that with the introduction of a creature we've yet to see. It's described as simply the serpent, more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now I know what you're thinking. This is the devil, Satan. 
And you're not wrong. Other parts of the Bible make it clear that the devil is indeed the yet-to-be-revealed identity of the serpent. But set that knowledge aside for now, if you can, so that we can evaluate this creature just based on the few details we are given here, and what serpents often symbolized in ancient Near Eastern cultures. The first item to score away is that you notice I call it a creature, because the first verse of chapter 3 makes that very clear for us. God made the serpent, It is a beast of the field that the Lord God had made. It is a creature, literally a created thing. This gets us past any notion that the serpent, or by extension the devil, and God are these two opposing forces that are on equal footing, like yin and yang, or the dark and light sides of the force in Star Wars. God and Satan are not good and evil personified, waging war eternally in a power struggle over the fate of the universe. This becomes more and more clear throughout the story of the Bible, but I wanted to lead with that. The second thing to consider is how serpents were understood symbolically in the ancient Near East. And it turns out that serpents could carry meaning ranging from life to death and wisdom, chaos, even healing. Pretty broad, I know, but despite the negative association for the serpent in this story, remember, a few books later in the Bible, in the book of Numbers, you'll have Moses, under God's direction, crafting a bronze serpent and putting it up on a pole so that all who see it would be healed. In fact, this serpent-on-a-pole imagery is still used as a symbol for healing today. Check out the side of an ambulance next time you see one, or a roadside sign for a hospital. You'll see a blue and white symbol. It's called the Star of Life. And in the middle of that symbol, it's a serpent winding its way up a pole. Now, this symbol is typically traced back to the Greek god Asclepius, god of medicine and healing, who is sometimes depicted as a human with this serpent-entwined staff. And that's fine, but Moses did it first. I'm just saying. But the serpent that shows up in the garden clearly isn't there for healing, so we'll need to pick another one of the other options. Another fairly well-known ancient depiction of the serpent is on the headdress of the Egyptian pharaohs. If you think back on pictures you may have seen of King Tut's funeral mask, right above the forehead there, you've got this reared cobra with its hood flared out, ready to strike. It's a symbol of power. This is interesting given that in the book of Exodus, Pharaoh is the bad guy of the story. So this garden encounter is the first appearance of the serpent in the story of the Bible, but it certainly won't be the last. It is perhaps the most blatant appearance outside the book of Revelation, but other encounters tend to be more subtle, which generally works in his favor. It's what makes him so effective. He is described as being crafty or cunning, more crafty than any other beast of the field. This sounds kind of negative in English, but it doesn't have to be. The Hebrew word arum is actually neutral, and you see it most in the book of Proverbs where it gets translated prudent. In Proverbs, the wise are often called prudent, and the foolish, well, they're not. Proverbs 16.12, for instance, says, The vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. 
Or Proverbs 14.8, which says, The wisdom of the prudent is to discern his way, but the folly of fools is deceiving. The prudent person is usually contrasted with the foolish person, so to be prudent, to be arum in Proverbs, is always a good thing. The serpent is arum too, but our English translators call it crafty or cunning, probably because of how the serpent is about to use his arumness to carefully lay a trap for the man and the woman by undermining God. And as we walk through this conversation he has with the woman, by the end, you really do have to hand it to him. It's a master class in manipulation, and his deception works so well in large part because he actually mixes in quite a lot of truth. He starts by asking her, Did God really say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Although the narrator does confirm he is speaking to the woman here, the nature of his question really has to do with both of them, the man as well as the woman, because the you in his question is second person plural. In English, the pronoun you can be a little ambiguous because it's sometimes singular, sometimes plural, but in Hebrew, it's always clearly inflected, either singular or plural. So what he's asking is, did God really say, y'all shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He knows better than he lets on, of course. What God actually said was there was just this one tree in particular that they couldn't eat from. But he's setting her up to have the opportunity to correct him, to get to be the smart one in the conversation, which she does, explaining to him that no, they could actually eat from any of the trees in the garden and that only one was off limits. But that one tree could not be eaten from or even touched because if they did, they would die. She's mostly right, but she has one detail wrong. God didn't say anything about not touching it. He just said not to eat from it. And maybe she added that part on her own so she could help herself out, creating a boundary around not just eating from it, but even touching it at all might just be in her best interest. It's another layer of protection to keep her from getting too close to death. There could be wisdom in that, but if she actually believes this, that just by touching the fruit of the tree she would die, this is a misunderstanding that will work against her very shortly. If the serpent catches that mistake in her understanding, he doesn't try to correct it. Instead, his response is to contradict something that God did actually say. And I think he tips his hand a bit here in doing so. Because while she doesn't quite quote what God told them back in chapter 2, she says, you shall not eat or touch lest you die. The serpent responds to her by saying, you will not surely die. She doesn't use the phrase surely die, but that's what the serpent says back to her. And those are the actual words that God uses from the last chapter, surely die. The serpent knows exactly what God has said and how he said it, even if the woman isn't able to repeat it back to him verbatim. He already knows. 
But what does it matter here whether God said surely die or if he simply said die? Same outcome, right? Well, not necessarily. My family and I really enjoy watching The Chosen. It's a great show and I appreciate the attention to detail and how they have advisors on everything from the history to culture, theology, even the Hebrew language, which they weave in and out of the dialogue in ways that are just really well done. So there's this one scene where Simon Peter, when he's saying goodbye to another character, Gaius, who is Roman, Simon says to him, Shalom, Shalom. And curious, Gaius asks him, why do you say it twice? And Simon explains, well, once means peace, twice means perfect peace, complete wholeness. It's a feature of the Hebrew language. When you want to emphasize a word, you say it twice. When we want to emphasize words or ideas in English, we use words like very or really or greatly. If I want to emphasize my hunger, I might say I'm very hungry. If I want to exaggerate, I can say I'm starving. But I wouldn't say I'm hungry hungry. So when English Bible translators come across these twice spoken kinds of words in Hebrew, they smooth it out for us by making it into a phrase that works well in English. And that's what's going on with the phrase surely die here in Genesis chapter 3, or certainly die as it's put in the NIV or New American Standard. In Hebrew, it's literally die, die. God said die, die. The woman said die. The serpent said die, die. The same as God said. So what do we do with this? Degrees of hunger or peace are one thing. We get that. But are there degrees of dead? I mean, you kind of either are or you aren't. This emphatic die-die appears a handful of times in the Old Testament. In most cases, it gets used in response to a violation of some kind. The breaking of a law or a royal edict of a human king or God himself. And that certainly fits our context here. It's essentially an expression of the death penalty. And the death penalty, in a time and place where there's no death row, no appeals court, no stay of execution, you would expect that the death penalty in ancient times would, most often, be swift and certain. And you'd be right. Which is what makes what happens here so interesting. If God says the man and the woman would die, die, if they ate of the tree, which is exactly what they're about to do, why doesn't it happen in typical die-die fashion? Why is death for them not swift and certain? Now, they do die. Adam does eventually die. Genesis chapter 5 tells us at the right bold age of 930. Certain? Maybe. But swift? Not so much. It doesn't happen in the way you would expect if you're taking the language at face value. So, as this has to do with the serpent telling the woman, you will not die, die, we're left with two possibilities. The first is that the serpent is lying. He tends to do that. The serpent takes God at his word, believes that the man and the woman will receive the death penalty then and there, if they eat of the fruit, but tells them that they won't in order to try and get them killed. The second possibility is this, and I can't tell you for certain 
which of these two is right, but I am intrigued by the second option. And that is that the serpent is not lying. Again, he knows better than he lets on. He may just know God better than the humans do. Somehow, he may know about God what the prophet Jonah knows about God. Jonah ended up in the belly of that big fish for a reason. And it wasn't because he was afraid for his life, that if he went to Nineveh and preached against them, that they would get mad and string him up for it. No, he was actually afraid for their lives. That is, that God would spare them. The Assyrians had destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel, Jonah's own people, and the last thing that Jonah wants is to go to Nineveh, have them moved with regret for what they had done, and ask for God's forgiveness, and then actually receive it. Jonah wants justice. He wants the death penalty. He wants them all to die, die. And God was going to overthrow the city. But Jonah chapter 3 says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented from the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Even though God is a God of justice, it turns out he loves mercy. And the way that God reconciles these otherwise incompatible virtues of justice and mercy is a very important part of the way the grand story of the Bible unfolds. And in this part of the story, that is Genesis chapter 3, I think the possibility stands wide open that the serpent already knows this about God. It's not that God doesn't mean what he says. He does. But mercy can only be mercy when justice is truly called for. And God has the right to follow through with justice, swift and certain. But he also has the right to extend mercy. And the man and the woman will still have severe consequences for their decision. But it might just be that the serpent rightly predicts a merciful response from God. Because he knows this about God at some level. He may not know how God will maintain the integrity of his own justice and still manage to show these humans mercy. But he's banking on God's mercy to show up. And he's right. We can talk more about how that works in a couple of weeks. But he also knows that whether God shows mercy or not, this is still going to cause all kinds of trouble. And it does. I also think it's entirely possible that the serpent knows from the outset that he's not going to get away with enticing the humans to eat the fruit. He's a created being that seems to know God pretty well, and what he does there at the tree is not going to somehow escape God's notice. So he gets cursed, just as surely as they do, after God shows up. But I think it's all worth it to him. And to me, that's just the scariest kind of villain you can have. Revelation chapter 12 says that the devil has come down to earth in great wrath because he knows his time is short. With winning not being an option then, he will use the time he has to wreck as many human lives as possible. I began earlier with a reference to the Charlie Daniels song, The Devil Went Down to Georgia. This song is a story of 
a fiddling contest between the devil and a boy named Johnny. The song ends with Johnny having won the contest, gaining a golden fiddle from the devil as his prize and gloating over the devil and mocking him in his defeat. The irony of this song, and I am reinterpreting this song here, is that Johnny doesn't really win. He outfiddled the devil, sure, but the devil outplayed him. The song goes, the devil bowed his head because he knew that he'd been beat, and he laid that golden fiddle on the ground at Johnny's feet. For one, I think the devil is happy for humans to have riches, because we tend to worship money, so a golden fiddle would make a fine idol for Johnny to have. And two, as the devil is slumped there with his head bowed down, listening to Johnny's prideful rant, as the boy just revels in this perceived victory, basking in his own glory, I can just imagine a smile spreading across the devil's lips. His head still bowed towards the ground in a show of defeat, but whispering under his breath, that's my boy. The devil isn't too proud to lose, if it means he can still get what he wants, as in Genesis chapter 3. And what he wants is sin and death. It's really not an exaggeration to say that the fallout of what happens at the tree is going to warp the fabric of the entire universe. Does that sound a bit extreme for just having eaten some fruit? But like everything else we've seen so far in these early chapters of Genesis, nothing here simply operates at face value. And there is depth of meaning that the writer intends for us to pick up on. And so, we continue next week when we will examine what the man and the woman's decision to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil meant for them and for us. We hope you're enjoying and storied. If you like what you hear, please leave a rating and a review so others can find us. We'll see you next week.